This is Impact, a look at the things that matter in Nevada. September 1st is coming fast. After that date, thousands of people in Nevada could be homeless as the rent and mortgage moratorium ends. But there is some recourse, including cash, housing assistance programs, and rental negotiations. Of course, if the unemployment system were working, then more people might be able to pay their rent. But Dieter says one of our guests today is woefully understaffed and the feds are dickering over ideology while artists are staging online protests showing their empty plates. The lasting legacy of COVID-19 may just be that it brings more people together and exposes the hypocrisy of division. Arts organizations in Southern Nevada are doing just that and they're making some headway. And one tweet brought out waves of offers of help for a high school guitar teacher. We're looking at all of that on this week's Impact. But first, a look at some of the news this week and last. A grim milestone this week in Nevada. We have crossed the 1,000 deaths threshold from COVID-19. COVID-19 is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. behind cancer and heart disease. But we have to remember that people with heart disease are not necessarily going to the ER when their chests or their arms or their backs start hurting because they're afraid of COVID-19. We also have to remember that COVID manifests in myriad ways, including with heart and circulatory issues. I'm going to bring in Sarah O'Connell here to talk about the news this week. Sarah, it's been a while since I talked to you on the show. Hi, I know. I missed you guys. I know. It's so great to be here. Uh, the uh-huh. word for the week is Kamala. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Yes. My first thought is the word intersectionality doesn't have to be about negativity. Boom. Intersectionality is another way of saying unity. Intersectionality is another way of visualizing the American dream and the American promise. And what you get when you have intersectionality in someone like Kamala Harris where she's a convergence of not just uh, different cultural backgrounds from her parents as immigrants, uh, and not just from you know her role as a you know person, a woman in in a place that has often been ruled by patriarchy. Uh, you also have this idea of class uh, coming from the East Bay. See, I I feel like I know her in my bones because I myself am an East Bay California girl. And she went to law school in Berkeley. I ran a theater company in Berkeley. Uh, she's only about 10 years older than me. So I feel like I know from where she was grown. Mm. And it's as down to earth uh, a place and as diverse a place as you could possibly imagine there between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And I think it's fascinating to have an East Bay Area person approaching the White House. Uh, that's never happened before to my knowledge. I think that that's amazing because it's very interesting to know that I think that's why it's easy for her to understand and have empathy for a whole range of the American, uh, you know, people, because you really find the full range of American people right there up and down the East Bay area. So, so that's that is, and that is why, right. You know, the East Bay has always been seen as the liberal bastion. Uh, and not. It's a real mix. It is a, it is a real more. mix. But I think it's, what I find interesting about this choice, we knew she was going to get hit from the left uh, because mm-hmm. there are people who are like, well, if you are a prosecutor, that automatically disqualifies you from from representing people of color or mm-hmm. uh, people who, who are 
uh, in opposition to police or people who have been abused by police. Um, and, and there are people like Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton who argue that you can't change from without, that you have to, mm-hmm. you have, to have people agitating without and you have to have people within the system in order to affect yes. change. So there's that part of it. But I also feel like Trump immediately came up and said, oh, she's the most liberal senator uh, in the Senate, which is not true. (laughs) And there's a little bit of of, you know, she's a black woman, so she must be liberal. And (laughs) we're going to play on that. And they're going to try. Uh, and and there was this quote that that Trump said that Trump talked about yesterday about suburban housewives. T- tell me about what he said yesterday. Oh yeah, this was special. And now uh, the voice of a suburban house housewife in air quotes because he has it. We'll read it. Okay. The suburban housewife <laughs> will be voting for me. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhood. Wow. Biden would reinstall it in a bigger form. With Cory Booker in charge. Wow. That's my reader's theater version as a suburban housewife of what I'm thinking and how afraid I'm supposed to be. And it's outrageous and disgusting. And why I think Kamala Harris's intersectionality is going to be um, uh, her strength, that our diversity is our strength as a people, because that's why they can't figure out how to attack her, because she's more than... Uh, one or the other of anything, just right. like our our community. So, but that's really uh, shocking. It's not a dog whistle; it's a train whistle, as my oh, husband said last night uh, yeah. when he read that. <laughs> and um, I I find that that if that's his reaction to this new ticket, then uh, it kind of makes it clear what you're supporting when you vote. Yes, in November. Yes, Trump actually. Uh, admitted this week that he was uh, trying to undermine the Postal Service. Uh, this is a man mm-hmm. who has who uh, uh, has no subtlety at all. Uh, he he was on Fox News and he said, "Well, you know, if if the Postal Service doesn't work, then mail-in voting can't happen." Well, he'll leave no stone in the Constitution unturned, including the Postal Service, which is in the Constitution because we've okay. had the Postal Service since before the Constitution. So that the Postal Service, along with, you know, our free press are both things that aren't, you know, they're not negotiable from a constitutional standpoint. So um, I want to get to arts before we start talking about uh, arts in Las Vegas in particular. Uh, Yesterday was a nationwide fast in which many entertainment people posted pictures of their empty plates because they are not. Uh, going to be getting uh, uh, unemployment money because they are freelancers. Uh, this this stalling of the money in Congress between people on one side who don't think the government should do anything and people on the other saying this is what government is for is actually hurting people uh, in the middle. Uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> the the fact remains that the idea that people getting enough. Uh, food to eat is somehow going to stop them from continuing their careers and working in their small businesses is ridiculous. So what the Republican argument has been against continuing the $600 payments uh, is that somehow it's keeping people at home who would otherwise go to work. It's not the case across the nation, and it's definitely not the case here in Southern Nevada where there is no work. 
Right. So uh, all they're doing is starving people while they refuse to agree. And it's, uh, it's getting dire and we're approaching the September one uh, lift on, you know, evictions and it's going to become, it's going to become terrifyingly real. And so this is something that we just cannot pretend is about a politics as usual argument. This is something far worse. Yeah, I'm going to bring in Jason Nias right now. He's one of the founders of what you just heard, the Melati Performance Group. Jason, you do what's called body percussion. What is this uh, and where did the idea come from? You know, body percussion, uh, as I go around the country and I teach to different classes, kids, studios, even um, colleges and even corporate events, um, I, I use the term body percussion because it's a big umbrella term that includes all of the different type of percuss- percussive dances. So I actually got my start with stepping, which is uh, African-American fraternity, sorority, collegiate style of body percussion. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of precision, lots of beats, rhythm, stomping, clapping, shouting, hooting, hollering, making chants up, you know. So that's actually where I got my start. But then, um, you know, going along my career in in the arts and entertainment, um, I picked up more musicality. And so then I found that there's so many other styles of percussive dance, you know, we could just <laughs> name them off, you know, like flamenco, tap, uh, any anything that we could, that we can make music with our bodies or with our feet or without other instruments involved, you know? So I think body percussion is just a term that really uh, is an umbrella. It, it captures all of that. So we are going to have uh, actually links to your YouTube pages uh, and uh, because it's it's kind of really cool to watch. Uh, and it's also very cool to listen to. Um, but I want to talk about the Producers Alliance because both of you are involved in this. Sarah, you have been working for years now to uh, bring the Southern Nevada uh, theater and entertainment communities together. Looks like COVID kind of helped that along a little bit. Tell me about what you're doing. Well, there's no atheist in foxholes, right? So uh, <laughs> finally, this, uh, I feel like I've been like John the Baptist in the desert, and finally people are getting religion. Uh, <laughs> um, the Producers Alliance is really uh, an effort for the uh, arts and culture sector and to uh, declare itself its own industry that needs its own attention. And and these days it means it needs its own attention from the state uh, leap committee, which is in charge of helping with the COVID recovery. Which Marilyn right Kirkpatrick the, is in charge of, right? Uh, our yes, county commission. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And uh, because right now there is no specific policy uh, or or strategic plan that's been described for local arts. So we get lumped in either the casino showroom slash entertainment side of regulations and you know economic support, or we get uh, lumped into bars uh, and small small kind of places like that. Neither of those things are ballet companies, theater companies, symphonies. They are also not the small production houses that service both the strip and the local arts companies. So that's not, those aren't our small mom and pop lighting companies or our audiovisual companies. So 
there's there's a whole industry that represents about 5.5% of Nevada's GDP that's identified as the independent arts and uh, arts adjacent uh, economy. And we're being ignored. And yet we understand that we are the generators of all the other industry. Stagehands are the ones who do the trade shows. Our performers and our students from UNLV's theater department become the strip staff there's just a whole lot there that's being ignored and not um, not planned for, which means our recovery will not happen without local arts involved. So, so what are you to trying try to, to do? Get that conversation. We're there to, first of all, um, one of the reasons why our sector is often ignored is that it hasn't been united and, and coordinating it, some of its, um, you know, there's there needs to be a fellowship around our work and alliance of sorts so that we have one place for these other groups like the LEAP committee or business partners to talk to. So it's a point of contact for the local arts community. Um, and so we want to open up a line of communication between the people making the policies that impact us and, uh, and ourselves, because right now there isn't one. So being one group means you can talk to us all at once. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> we're looking to work with the league commission and whoever else is in charge of setting policies for our reopening our recovery uh we want them to understand they need to think about us specifically and what how their plans how we fit into their plans so and the other thing is we're, we're looking to um form this alliance so that we can also reach out to other business leaders and things like that to make it easier to have community partnerships between ah. these individual arts organizations and businesses so that we can get artists back to work and help them the way and help arts actually service the community like it's supposed to, whether it's arts and health, you know, or if it's having to do with real estate and developing neighborhoods and painting murals, or if it has to do with corporate uh, work and dealing with re, uh, re improving your corporate culture by working empathy into your management style and working with artists who do that kind of work. There's a whole range of ways we could be helping. Empathy and so. management style, what a concept. Jason, mm -hmm. uh, I would love to bring you in here. What is, uh, how, what is your role in this and, and why did you join this effort? Uh, unity is everything, really. It, um, just across, I've lived everywhere. <laughs> I was a military kid. Oh, wow. um, and so just across the, all these different communities that I've personally been a part of and just lived amongst, you know, uh, DC being one of the most, um, before, right before I moved to Vegas, I lived in DC and I saw the power of what unifying people can do, unifying organizations to do, can do because I was inside of an organization and we were a part of an arts incubator. So we were physically in the same building, but we were sharing resources. We were sharing knowledge, understanding, grants, resources, things like that. And just on that scale and what I was a part of and that one thing, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. for those few years, I saw the exponential growth of each of those companies. I saw that and I saw the power and the voices that they had within the city, you know, within the district. Then I moved to Las Vegas and it was like, oh, okay, I guess it literally is a desert. I, I, you, you know, like how outsiders, don't, don't, they don't know how yeah. Vegas works and I didn't know that either, either. So when I first got here, it was so confusing to me that the money from the strip doesn't go to the school system that the money from the strip doesn't go to <laughs> local arts it's like what? 
<laughs> going on it was so confusing because I thought that's how things worked you know because my whole life I was like looking at systems that do work then I get here I was like whoa so when uh Sarah and I we've had these epic conversations five hours yes. long at a time I can you know, imagine I can imagine <laughs> yeah. well to have somebody here like Sarah who is just beasting through the ups the downs where you get a lot of participation and, and head nods and yes and then you get crickets silence <laughs> no but she's still there and she's still you know trying to glue these people together trying to bring them along you know but we agreed on this thing so long ago you know like this is just an obvious thing that needs to be here in las vegas you know and um that whole old thing about where's the culture in las vegas it's like well this is how we make things stick this is what this city right. needs and then i think this whole covid thing of everybody staying at home it's is definitely it's awakened us in a way that we're in tuned to mm -hmm. what we need now. We're in tune to what the nation needs right now. We're in tune to racism in a certain way right now that we weren't in tune to before because we had to sit at home, sit in the corner and think about what you just did. You know, we were all on punishment. <laughs> so we all had a chance to let it marinate. It's like now we're coming out of punishment, we think, and, and it's like, yeah, well, these are the important things. These are the things that need to stick. And I'm so happy that this is one of those things that really, really does need to stick for this arts community to be alive, to thrive in the future, and to really make an impact that doesn't just drift away like it has several times in the past. You know, we get excited, there's two or three years of, and then it, it's like, yo, what just happened? Yo, where's the culture in mm. Vegas? Come on, come on, this is how we make this stick, so. Okay, yeah, Sarah. Sarah's leading the way on this. Yeah, she is. Uh, Sarah, so this is, uh, I want to end this uh, conversation with uh, what people can do to get more information about this and what your next steps are gonna be. Okay, great. Well, there we have already, um, the minute people were getting on board, I got on board with uh, ways to communicate. So we are at palsnv.org or palsnv.org because we're all pals at the Producers Alliance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter with that same handle, palsnv. Um, and so that's where people who own a, an arts adjacent like producing business. So if, if you're on the commercial side or people who run uh, an arts organization that produces events related to culture can um, give us their email address and express their interest because we'll be planning our first official formal uh, general meeting in September. Okay. And we, are, we have received a response to our initial joint letter that the Producers Alliance wrote to the LEAP Commission expressing um, where we think they've overlooked us. And I got oh. a response from uh, Commissioner Kirkpatrick's office. Good. So we have begun the dialogue and I'm excited about the fact that we've made some progress in our first action. And uh, we are right now forming um, the paperwork to get our official uh, corporation filed. So this is this is happening and it's being, and we're finding a way to flip the switch in the middle of the pandemic, which is also what artists do. You see a crisis and we build a vision <laughs> beyond it and solve right. it. So people can look on that website to get in contact with us. And uh, we will just continue to build uh, our alliance and get a formal structure together. And it's my expectation that uh, we'll be able to then 
formally transfer the Las Vegas Valley Theater Awards over to the Producers Alliance where it belongs ah. so that Eat More Art Vegas, which has been taking care of it for the last couple of years and presenting it, uh, can hand it back over to the theater community specifically, and they can continue to use that to help build their organization, raise funds, things like that. So we've got a good model. And we're looking forward to just making it happen. That was Sarah O'Connell, who, along with Kate St. Pierre from the Lab Theater, are the driving forces behind the Producers Alliance of Southern Nevada. The Producers Alliance is trying to make sure that artists who make up a lot of Southern Nevada's culture and work are not left behind. We've also been talking to Jason Nias from Melody Body Percussion, and we will have links to Melody on our website. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. This is Impact. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. So here's a bit of irony. The Department of Training and Rehabilitation, or DEETER, is having employment problems. They can't seem to keep a leader. COVID-19 hit Nevada workers harder than any other state. The agency was overloaded from the beginning. Tiffany Tyler Garner, who ran DEETER pre-COVID, resigned in April. Her temporary replacement, Heather Korbulik, stepped down in June after she received death threats. In July, Deputy Director Dennis Perea, who was the highest-ranking person in the building, also resigned. So Governor Sisolak seems to have come up with a team approach. He named longtime government relations person Alyssa Caffaretta to head the uh, agency as the acting director. And he tapped Barbara Buckley to head a rapid response team to dissolve some of the more persistent roadblocks. Buckley is the executive director of the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada, And we're going to be talking to her about housing in a moment. But first, I want to talk about Dieter. Uh, Barbara, you were also a former assemblywoman, and you were a Speaker of the House for two terms uh, until 2011. You bring this experience of sort of like cutting through government bureaucracy with you. Uh, What is the thing that you need first to tackle on this team, and, and, and how are you going to do it? Well, the good news is that we have a number of people who have volunteered. And of course, uh, everyone in the community is concerned uh, when we have eligible people waiting for their unemployment too long. And so because of that, we have a number of people with different backgrounds who said, count me in, Uh, how can I help? So what we're we're doing is we're looking at the backlog. And of course, the system is clogged with fraudulent filers. And this is a phenomenon that's happening all around the United States, right? The scammers who have stole people's identities, most likely in one of those huge data breach cases a few years ago. Right, right. They've been waiting for this opportunity, right? And now they have filed tons of false claims, some in the names of people who truly exist using their data. So that's that's one of the issues. So we're looking at IT solutions on that. 
And the other is just more staffing. I mean, the um, Nevada ha came into the pandemic with one of the lowest unemployment rate rates we've ever seen mm -hmm. with tourism, of course, as our state's main employer. And then we were hit the hardest, of course, by the pandemic and in terms of, um, you know, our unemployment rate. So we're keeping our eyes on the prize. The focus, the immediate focus is the backlog. And then, of course, the other solution is additional staff, right? We have to ramp up. We had a very, we had a skeleton unemployment staff. And now we have to make sure we have enough people to process the claims timely. So we're looking at every solution on the table. And our goal is to get benefits to those who are eligible and then denials to those who aren't with the opportunity to appeal if they think government's wrong, right? right. That, that's the basic concept of how the program works. So we're working on speed because people have been waiting too long. So are you saying that a lot of people who have who are waiting, who have legitimate claims, also uh, have other people who have put in claims in their name? Are, like, are there a lot of double claims in that case? There are some, yes. And then we have some legitimate people who are being blocked out of their own account because a fraudster has filed in their name. Mm. And then of course we wanna do the best job that we can, right? In paying the uh, eligible folks and not paying the fraudsters. <laughs> right. Well, the fraudsters included all the right information about the person, right? So uh, that's why it's become a little bit of a Gordian knot, but uh, my goal is speed. Let's come up with the best solutions we can as quick as possible. Because, you know, people are, um, they're enduring unimaginable uh, hardships. Some yes. have been waiting for months and months. Yes. We have an eviction um, moratorium ending, right? right? People have mortgages, they yes. need medications, right? So speed is our goal. Uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the staffing issues at Dieter. I, I feel like over the last couple of decades, state governments have been slashing jobs. Uh, after, the, after the recession in 2008, uh, the, the private sector job market came back, but the public sector job market really did not. Uh, is, this, is this something that we're paying for now because of the public's attitude towards uh, government workers? I, I do think there's a little bit of that in here. And, um, you know, while making a list of all the things that I noticed to pass on, what I'm trying to do is keep my eyes on the prize, right? Um, it's the backlog, right? Mm -hmm. I How get it. The backlog? But certainly as I'm going along, I'm taking some notes. Uh, and I think that you have to have a sufficient level of staffing to begin with. You have to have IT ready to go. It doesn't, it doesn't help uh, though, I might note, when the feds are creating all of these, you know, kind of new programs, it's like, okay, state, set this up. Yeah. When instead, it might just be better for them to send the money to people, right? Right. Do we really need to set up a whole new system, right? Right. With different agencies and different rules, um, that will take months to design? Or could we instead mail people checks or deposit it in their accounts? So I think a little bit more thought on the front end too from the feds would lead to better results. Okay, so um, that's not gonna happen 
uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dreamer. What can I say? Uh, you are. You are definitely a dreamer. Uh, what? Roughly two thirds of uh, Nevada's total workforce has actually applied for unemployment. That's almost a million people. And uh, I understand that independent contractors are a new entity. We just talked about that in our last conversation. But are independent contractors gonna gonna get paid soon? Well, that's that's the goal of the Rapid Response Task Force. That's the goal of the new acting director. And uh, you know, we're gonna do all we can to make that happen. I want to go more specifically right now. Um, I actually filed for unemployment because <laughs> my teaching gigs ended. Um, I got, uh, I got, it was easy. It was actually easy to go online and file. They had all my information already. And then I got a card in the mail and the card has $0 on it. And that was about a month ago. And I, I feel like there's an easy answer here. And if I could just get through to somebody and ask them a question, they would give me that easy answer and things would come unclogged. And I feel like I'm not the only one who's in this position. Um, so, so is my feeling correct? Am I leaning in the right direction here? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that need to happen, right? You need to be able to get on the phone to talk to somebody. You need your claim timely processed. You wanna have a communication strategy too that's a little broader, like for example, Everybody has sent that card in the mail so that if you're approved, the um, benefits can be added quickly, right? Mm. You're not then waiting another 10 days for you to get your card in the mail, right? That's the reason it's done that way. But does everybody understand that? No. (laughs) Probably not. So I think that's why we need to do all of those things. And right now, as we're in this kind of, you know, catastrophic backlog, What I keep preaching um, on our calls is, you know, rather than ramp up people to answer the phones, let's just get people paid. Because if you take care of them, then there's enough people to answer the phones, right? Right. And people are calling because they want to get paid. So like kind of first things first, let's prioritize things. And to me, the top one is getting people paid. And then of course, if they're not eligible, giving, give them a denial So they're not kind of counting on the money when they're not eligible in the first place. And that's a huge problem. Um, You know, the feds have designed this program and the states have no flexibility, right, on how it's run. Mm -hmm. So let's say um, you both had W-2 wages and independent contractor wages, right? Right. So you you drove for Uber, but you were a bartender for a restaurant, right? Mm And that's pretty common. People have lots of different types of jobs yes. in this economy. Now, yes. Right? Well, what what they did is, well, you know, uh, PUA is for independent contractors. UI is for regular or W-2 wages. But you can't go to PUA if you uh, qualify for UI. And then there's, um, if you're disqualified for UI, so let's say you quit your job as the bartender. You hated it. You quit. Voluntary quit will disqualify you from all types of aid, (laughs) right? Right. So one of the things I said is, let's do a better job of getting these rules out here. Let's do a little chart, right? So that people can kind of have a, a better expectation of how it really works and kind of break it down out of the federal ease. 
But on those requirements, there's no state discretion. The feds have set up the rules and you have to kind of run through each one of them in order to determine your eligibility. Then every quarter, it's got to be recalculated. And then if you have wages in another state, you got to reconcile it with that. And then if you had a federal job, those wages have to be calculated manually. So it's quite a process um, that it's been designed. Barbara Buckley is a former assembly speaker and the executive director of the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. She's going to be back later in the show talking about housing. Barbara, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. I just noted that I had filed for unemployment. Nevada Voice, which co-produces Impact, is a nonprofit, and we are currently writing grants to support the show. We also have a Patreon page at Impact from Nevada Voice. You can find a link at KUNV.org impact, become a member, and I will share with you extras from our weekly conversations and pictures of my travels around the stories that matter in Vegas. Eviction moratorium is coming to an end. Governor Sisolak, you may remember, put the moratorium in place in March as people were being laid off or fired because of COVID-19. That meant landlords could not assess late fees for unpaid rent and banks would have to give mortgage holders payment rearrangements, also without late fees. In March, we had no idea that by September 1st, we would still be dealing with COVID-19. Landlords can't wait for payment anymore, and renters will be subject to not only back rent, but the fees that are owed with them and possible eviction. In July, the legislature authorized Federal CARES Act money to go to housing assistance to be divided up between counties. Here to talk with us today about that CARES Act money is Treasurer Zach Conine. He is joined by the director of Clark County Social Services, Tim Birch. So, Zach, let's start with you. Um, How much did we get in CARES Act funding? When did we get it? Is it enough? Uh, So the state received a total of $1.25 billion in CARES funding. Some of that went directly to Clark County. Some went to the city of Las Vegas. And then the state uh, had the balance and is using it for all sorts of different kinds of programs. Uh, I can answer your second question very easily. No, Uh, the needs (laughs) of the state and local governments uh, deeply uh, and significantly exceed $1.25 billion. Uh, How much do they exceed? by billions of dollars. I mean, I think, you know, we're in an unprecedented time. There is a significant amount of help that needs to be done, both on the public health side, on the uh, rent and mortgage side, uh, and all over the place. And we just need more help. So um, why is the treasurer's office involved in housing issues? Well, the treasurer's office is always involved in housing issues through our work on the Board of Finance. The Board of Finance is the uh, entity that uses private activity bonds to support all uh, affordable housing constructions um, in part state-sponsored. 
Uh, but more explicitly than that, we obviously don't have a role in the public health response, right? That's not something that we have any expertise in, and generally that's a good thing. Uh, we're not doctors, and that should be controlled by doctors. Yes. But from an economics perspective, you know, as the state's chief investment officer, uh, we have a responsibility to make sure that our economic recovery is as fast and efficient as possible. And we know that looking at past recessions, specifically the Great Recession, we know that housing instability uh, leads to a slowdown in economic recovery. So when uh, you get into a situation where you're kind of stuck in the middle of a lake, everybody grabs an oar and tries to get to shore. And so that's where the treasurer's office comes in. So we are all trying to row to shore. Hopefully we're rowing in the same direction to the same shore. Um, but you, this money came in. Uh, it is now being delegated to the state, to the counties. Uh, how are you deciding who gets what? So our original plan, uh, obviously there's funds being used from the CARES Act for all sorts of things, right? The CARES Act in itself supports uh, FPUC, which is the additional $600 a week that recently expired. Um, it supported expansion of UI benefits to gig workers through the PUA program um, and a number of other programs. Part of it, the CRF, the Coronavirus Relief Fund dollars, uh, came in, and that's a little bit more discretionary. There was a decision that we made to spend uh, $50 million of that at the state level for rental relief. Mm. $30 million of that went to uh, residential, and $20 million went to commercial. That's a program that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. But on the residential front, uh, we took population and some information from the Gwynn Center um, and distributed $20 million of that to backstop um, the fantastic $30 million that Clark County had already uh, determined to put in a program. So we actually were able to take their program and, and fund that and then funded programs in uh, Reno and in the rural communities through their um, housing agencies. How many people do you expect to uh, actually help in terms of uh, housing, uh, rental assistance in particular? Well, it, it depends, right? So as we start getting information in from the different housing providers, from Tim uh, and his uh, compatriots in other uh, parts of the state, we're understanding a little bit more about average rent uh, needs and how much the average uh, grant is. Now, these are grants. They're not loans. So right. people don't have to pay them back. The average rent for a two-bedroom in the state of Nevada is about $1,200 a month. Um, so we know that the programs you know, can pay for a number of months of rent uh, for a lot of people, but it's not going to be enough to deal with the entire uh, rental backlog. We know that. Uh, but good first starts are good first starts. And it also gives us the mechanic to be able to continue to uh, put money in if additional funds come in from the federal government. If additional funds come in from the federal government, that's a that's a whole other thing. Tim Birch, I'm going to bring you in here. Um, you you set up this CARES Act, uh, this, this housing assistance program, pretty quickly uh, because this was discussed in the first special session. It's up and running now. What are average rents in Clark County? You know the basic rent uh, for one bedroom can cover around you know, twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars in the urban market for Clark County. What we're seeing the first few weeks of expenditures is the average request is coming in around two thousand uh, dollars mm. for back rent and utilities. A lot of landlords had, had been very gracious in working with their uh, renters, um, and folks had been using that extended uh, unemployment benefit and. Federal subsidy that they perhaps receive stimulus mm -hmm. checks to, to pay rent, and uh, it's just been stretched too far now, and, and the need is rising. 
rising as, as the weeks go. How many people can you take care of with the $30 million from the county and the $20 million from the state? What we're anticipating right now that that depends on if the basic uh, over the average amount increases because folks get further behind if we get to September 1st. Mm-hmm. And if we get into October 1st, the key is we have to have these dollars out the door. Uh, right now they are time limited and have to be extended by December 31st. Uh, but we're working with our, our 14 nonprofit partners throughout the community uh, to uh, receive all the applications possible, get them adjudicated as quickly as possible, um, and then look at standing up maybe some deeper end assistance programs as the fall comes online to help families that still haven't gotten back to work and need a second or third round of assistance. Okay, Zach, um, uh, Tim mentioned September 1st. What happens on September 1st? So the eviction moratorium that uh, the governor signed through Executive Directive 08 um, has been expanded, but September is basically the first month where uh, evictions can proceed uh, for non-payment of rent. And we know that there are a lot of Nevada families who are going to have difficulty um, catching up on the rent, which is why we wanted to put a program like this out there. The president has expressed uh, some interest in expanding the eviction moratorium and in directing FHA Uh, and HUD to look at that. Um, That may help some Nevadans, but it won't help all Nevadans, homeowners versus uh, renters, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure this program was up and running and to Tim's point, distributing funds prior to that deadline happening. So hopefully we can um, slow down that eviction process. And also I think, uh, and Tim mentioned this too, landlords through this process for the most part have been good actors and looking for solutions to keep people in their homes. We really appreciate that. We think that there's a lot that can be done through conversations between landlords and tenants. Um, and so the more of those conversations that happen, the less uh, we need to stand up government programs to fill in. So, Tim, you are just funneling people to uh, through your partners, and your website has a whole list of community partners, and I will have that uh, up on our website. Uh, but uh, are you dealing directly with landlords at the same time? Yes. Uh, you know, the Department of Social Service traditionally focuses in on homelessness prevention and the, the deep-end indigent clients uh, that are already in these kind of social welfare programs and systems, what we did was rather than create situations where non-traditional clients, you know, folks who have been working and employed for years to find themselves at the mercy of this crisis, having to come in and, and plug into this already um, exacerbated system, mm-hmm. we tried to create as many outlets in this community for them to quickly access um, through nonprofits that they perhaps even a few months ago were, were uh, contributing by, by we have donations. So right. um, our partners are well-versed and well-trained and easily accessible. And as you mentioned, uh, if you want a full list of all of those, folks can get that on, on your website after this show. And, of course, anytime going to helphopehome.org and, and seeing a full list of, of updated providers there. HelpHopeHome.org. You just heard Tim Birch, who's the director of Clark County Social Services. And we've been talking to Treasurer Zach Conine about the housing assistance program. People are going to start having to pay back fees and back rents. As of September 1st, there is money out there from the CARES Act and from the county. Uh, Thank you both for talking to me today.
Thanks for having us. Thank you. Tell us how we're going to pay the rent. How we're going to get enough to eat. Now that the working man is obsolete. You heard Barbara Buckley talk earlier on the show about September 1st being a big date in Nevada. That's the date that uh, landlords can start uh, charging late fees to people and start evicting people. But people have yet to get their unemployment and our economy is not back full staff. So we have still have people who are out of work. I want to talk now about uh, housing in Nevada, uh, not just how you can get access to paying your back rent and your back mortgage right now, but how the housing market kind of works in Nevada. Barbara, I know, uh, uh, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, second of all, um, I know the Legal Aid Center deals with housing issues. I know it has been dealing with housing issues since before COVID-19. Uh, there are a lot of people who cannot afford to live in Las Vegas. The wages, the prevailing wage in Las Vegas and uh, the rental uh, market in Las Vegas do not match up. So what were you seeing before COVID-19 hit? And what was your first thought when all of this happened? Well, even pre-COVID, uh, we have an affordability problem here in Nevada, right? Where the average wages do not, you know, pay or you can't afford the average rent. Right. And so we have this disconnect and, and you have different pockets of folks, especially hard hit, the elderly, large families, minimum wage workers. So we already had a crunch. And then, of course, COVID hit. Um, so since COVID happened, uh, what was your traffic like to legal aid? Well, um, through the roof, um, we have had so many complaints from weekly apartments where they're upset they were upset about the moratorium. So they were sending security guards in people's apartments unannounced saying, where's the rent? We had tons of those calls. Wow. And then we have um, calls. I can't afford my car payment anymore. They're repossessing my car. Um, you know, what do I do? Um, so tons of different kind of calls. And then of course we represent, um, all the kids in foster care in Clark County. So we see effects of COVID in those cases. Like there was one heartbreaking case last week where this child finally found a forever home and we were so, you know, just overwhelmingly happy. And then the adoptive mom died. Oh, oh my God. So, you know, it's it, it, there's no part of kind of poverty law or kind of, you know, everyday legal help that isn't being affected by the pandemic. Wow. Was weekly housing included in the moratorium? Yes, it was. And so what recourse do people have when somebody just walks into their home with a security guard with a gun, I'm assuming, and starts demanding the rent? Well, um, the attorney, the Nevada Attorney General's office and Aaron Ford was so engaged in this moratorium, they created a hotline. And of course, we had our own hotline. Nevada Legal Services had a hotline. 
all the legal aid providers around the state were helping. But, you know, it was really amazing when a landlord got a call from the Nevada Attorney General, they stopped. Uh And sometimes when our office calls, they say, okay, yeah, we'll stop, but then they'll do it again. And then we have to file a court action and we'll win, right? Right. But it'll take weeks. And so the Nevada Attorney General's office stepped in and they were so incredible. And so a lot of it was stopped, but there's still some lingering folks who don't feel like the law applies to them. And honestly, they make a lot of money intimidating people and they're not motivated yet to stop. So I think stay tuned. You'll see some future action uh, surrounding these bad actors. Okay, we will look for that. It's good to have good leadership that this is what leadership does. That's what the AG's office is showing us right now. Um, Homelessness. The city of Las Vegas tried before COVID-19 to uh, outlaw homelessness. Um, that that got garnered a lot of pushback. Um, well, to me, it's a two-prong attack, right? The first is prevention. And I was really pleased that the governor stopped evictions until September. A lot of them, a lot of states, they began again in July. And what we at least were able to do as a state is stand up the rent assistance program, which, um, you know, our treasurer Conine uh, spoke about. Right. So we have that in place. And that's no small feat to figure that out and to set it up and to, to stand it up. And so we have that. The Access to Justice Commission, chaired by justices Hardesty and Pickering, mm-hmm. are also standing up an eviction mediation program. The idea is, let's see if we can bring landlords and tenants together outside of the court system, right, to resolve and prevent an eviction. So it could be connecting them to the rental payment assistance. It could be um, coming up with a voluntary move out so the tenant's record isn't harmed. And that has a lot of potential. So prevention to me is number one. And then the second, once homelessness happens, it should be housing first. We need to get folks off the street and reconnected to housing, and we need to build more affordable housing. Yeah, and that's a long-term thing. In the meantime, we're going to have people, even if they voluntarily leave and it doesn't go on their records, where are they going to go? Well, that's right. I mean, they're hopefully they'll be able to, um, you know, find some help from their families, and hopefully. Um, We'll have more relief from Congress. I mean, we have record unemployment. You know, we need kind of recovery funds until we stabilize with COVID, right? It's obvious that's what we need, and we need it fast. So uh, I just want to follow up on what you just said about uh, needing more affordable housing uh, you have you've been in the weeds on this stuff for a long time. How much affordable housing do we need, and what would be affordable? And it, we just did raise the minimum ra- wage in Las Vegas. Uh, what do people need to make in order to afford housing? Well, um, 
there's always been a large disconnect. I think when I first started working on affordable housing issues in 1991, it was something like 60,000, right? That's, that's how many units we were short. If anything, that number, of course, with our community's growth, right? Mm -hmm. we, we didn't keep up then, and it's even worse now when you look at the ratio. Um, and then, of course, you have the vulnerable groups, the elderly, large families. Um, you know, I don't know what the current number is because I'm a, a little bit out of that uh, area right now. But what, what exacerbates the crisis is when times are good, we stop building affordable housing. We say there's no problem anymore. Uh. It's something that has to keep up year after year after year and um you also see i think some some cities aren't as committed to it as others right mm -hmm. um and we all then pay the price Barbara Buckley is the executive director of the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. She's also a former speaker of the assembly. She's been talking to us about homeless policy. Uh, Barbara, thank you for being with us. Uh, we'll follow up uh, as we move on and start seeing what happens after September 1st. Thank you so much. You're listening to Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. So I was flipping through Twitter the other day and came across a plea for guitars. Yeah, guitars. Paul Kleeman teaches guitar to about 200 students at Del Sol Academy. The school has about 60 guitars, perfectly fine for a class of students to play in class. But 200 students are now learning from home, and many of them don't have instruments. So Kleeman was asking people for their old guitars, which might be gathering dust. And he tagged just about every guitar manufacturer in North America. Paul Kleeman is with us to talk about his journey to equip each of his students with an instrument. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me. So I answered you on Twitter, and then I noticed that Zappos answered you on Twitter. So uh, have they stepped up? Um, Zappos has stepped up. Zappos contacted me that night, actually, and said they're willing to either do a one-to-one -one match, so for every guitar I get donated, they're willing to donate one, or a flat donation. And I'm still working out the final details with them, but I'm kind of leaning towards a flat donation because that's a little bit easier on me, and I can just, you know, put all that money into instruments right away. So a flat donation, we're talking about $100 per guitar, is that what you said? It's about a starting um, beginning guitar. They kind of fluctuate. So I'm looking for the best deal I can get. I'm hoping that I can contact some of these guitar manufacturers and, mm -hmm. you know, be like, hey, Zappos stepped up and gave me this donation. What can you guys do to help me make get the most uh, out of this donation? So Del Sol is an arts academy. Uh, tell me about your students. I am actually the only portion of the um, performing arts department that's not a magnet. So I teach a lot of the... Uh, zoned kids. So Del Sol is a comprehensive high school with a magnet for the performing arts inside. Hmm. So we have um, students that are there to learn how to play band instruments, orchestra instruments, uh, dance, theater, and all all aspects of theater, design for costumes, tech, uh, theater tech, and acting. And we started a, a cinematic arts program. So I am the not 
in the magnet, but I do serve some of the magnet kids. And a vast majority of my students are actually the kids that are zoned to go to Del Sol. Okay. And they don't have instruments. How do they practice? So the way the guitar program was conceived by the Clark County School District was we have a class set of guitars and I have about 60 guitars that are in my classroom. Um, my class sizes never exceed 40 to 42 because that's as big as my classroom is. Mm -hmm. So I always have guitars for the students during school. And then I have guitars that I can lend the students after school. And if they forget to bring it back or whatever, you know, I have a few extras that they can use. So I've never been a problem. Um, until we have the distance learning thing that's happened since COVID. Okay, so you're the guitar teacher. There is a band teacher and there is an orchestra. Uh, how are they dealing with getting instruments? Is everybody going on Twitter and tagging the instrument makers in Zappos? Uh, they are not. Um, the way that band is kind of in, in general, I mean, they have more instruments because it's less sanitary to share, you know, a flute amongst multiple students. True. Um, so they have more they have more instruments in their inventory in general, but they're also concerned, too, because they only have so many instruments and they're, they're working on trying to scramble to get instruments as well. Interesting. And what is the district saying? Any help coming from there at all? I have not heard anything from the district. It's we're in an unprecedented time, and I, I know they're trying to do everything they can to make it happen. But with the last, with me, with the Alkins legislative session that we had in the summer, it definitely, definitely hurt the mm. free free money in the school district in general because we are in a, a once in a lifetime pandemic, and you know having the casinos closed definitely hurt the revenue. So I'm going to call out to people. What kind of guitars are you looking for? Are you starting with classical? Are you looking for anything? Tell me. So honestly, I'm looking for anything because a guitar is a guitar is a guitar in distance learning. Um, in my classroom, the guitars I have primarily are classical nylon string guitars. But if people are generous enough to help out my students and the students of the Clark County School District, anything is going to be um, welcome. Do you have a GoFundMe set up for this? Um, GoFundMe's are not allowed by the school district. No, so of I, course not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's okay. Uh, so my workaround is my banker has set up a direct link into my school account where people can donate. Um, and I'll be sharing that on social media over the next day okay. to make sure everything works. And I've also started an Amazon wish list, which is an appropriate use Okay. with where I found a couple guitars that are um, like a good, good pack, I guess it's about a hundred dollars that I can use to have people donate to that too. So those are the both causes I have going. Okay, good. So give me those links and I will put them on our website. If you want to donate a guitar uh, to Paul or Del Sol, or if you've got another instrument sitting around, maybe a clarinet that you haven't played in 20 or 30 years that you want to donate to a school, um, we'll get you hooked up to schools that need them. If they want to donate any other instruments, I'd be more than happy to do the legwork to get them to somebody else. Yay! Meanwhile, the, the links to donate guitars will be on our website at KUNV.org. Paul, thanks for talking to me and good luck. 
Another episode of Impact has come and gone. Impact is a co-production of Nevada Voice and KUNV. Thanks to all my guests today, Barbara Buckley, Zach Conine, Tim Birch, Sarah O'Connell, Jason Nias, and Paul Kleeman. The music for today's show includes Arlo Guthrie's Unemployment Line and some clips from Melody's Body Percussion. I also played a couple riffs on the guitar. Of course, our intro music is Foster the People's Life on the Nickel, and you are listening right now to Vampire Weekend's Oxford Comma. We'll be back next week. You can get this show and previous shows on KUNV.org or Apple or Google Podcasts. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact. <laughs>